Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, dear listeners. Daniel here. Uh, we have a special bonus episode for you. That's right. We're pumping out two episodes in a week. Uh, Claude and I wanted to do something special for Valentine's Day. So we recorded a special episode uh, to uh, celebrate the day and also help us exercise some of our uh, poetics muscles that we that we worked on in the uh, the previous episode. Uh, so we're taking a look at the poetry of the 17th century English poet John Donne. Uh, his work is really uh, suffused with a kind of earthy eroticism combined with a very divinely oriented kind of deeper soulful love uh, that makes for a, a, a very heady mix uh, and really makes for fascinating and beautiful poetry. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. I, I certainly really enjoyed reading for it and uh, and talking about it with my buddy Claude. The Cannonball is proud to be a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and this month the Agora Podcast Network is featuring uh, the French History Podcast. This is a terrific podcast uh, tracing the history of France all the way back to its beginnings as a barbarian kingdom set up in the former Roman Gaul up to uh, the present day, a full 1,500-year span from Clovis to Clemenceau. Uh, and interspersed, there are all kinds of, uh, episodes, uh, not just following kind of that, that linear track, but addressing topics in French culture and history from all over that range. So it's a really fascinating, uh, and very well done podcast. I just finished up listening to the series on the Merovingian dynasty in the dark ages of, uh, of France, which was absolutely fascinating. And I learned a ton about a topic that I thought I had a pretty good handle on. So I think you guys will really enjoy it too. The French history podcast from Agora Podcasts, available wherever fine podcasts like the one you are about to listen to are found. And without further ado, here is your Valentine's Day special. Happy Valentine's Day and welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. As I mentioned before, we're doing a special episode today to celebrate Valentine's Day with the mm-hmm. poetry of John Donne. We had mentioned Donne in the previous episode on poetics. He came up and, and we were talking after the show. Dunn's one of my favorites. I, I really love going back to his stuff. And we figured, okay, we'll probably be long dead by the time we make it even out of the 19th century. <laughs> there, there's no way we'll be able to double back and do all of the cool 
you know, stuff that's back there. And we thought this might be just a fun opportunity, you know, to play up the cheesy holiday, but also get a, a, a little bit into done just because, you know, we might not pass this way again. So this is our Valentine's Spectacular with yeah. the <laughs> mostly erotic poetry of John Donne. <laughs> As I'm sure uh, St. Valentine himself would have would have wanted. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, uh, I, I owe my reading of Dunn to a particular professor I had in grad school, and I'm, I'm really sort of indebted to this one professor. He taught us 17th century literature and 17th century poetry, and he influenced the way I read Dunn. And he also had a really sort of fascinating take on Dunn and a kind of project to go along with Dunn. All right. His question was why anyone was reading Dunn in the early 20th century at Harvard. Hmm, All right. So the reason that question matters is because of who in particular came out of Harvard in the early 20th century and was reading Dunn, and that was T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Dunn was really fairly ignored for – I guess most of the 18th and into the 19th century, or at least his poetry was ignored. His biography was well known because it was sort of like a, a an object lesson in, I guess, reforming your past <laughs> bad behaviors. Uh, but the poetry was too complicated for the 18th century. Uh, Samuel Johnson famously denigrated it as metaphysical. So Hmm. it's associated with a school called the metaphysical poets, but that was a designation that was meant to be derogatory. In the 19th century, the Victorians dug his biography because it was sort of the biography of the reformed rake. And then for some reason, T.S. Eliot latched onto his poetry and sort of used it to justify some of the moves that he was making in his poetry. So Eliot had this fascination for 17th century verse, and there's a kind of parallel fascination that you can see sort of in the Spanish modernists. Yeah. Um, the, the generation of 26, I believe, was really sort of indebted to some of the golden age Spanish poetry that was deemed too complicated and weird and strange throughout the 18th and 19th century, but then sort of reemerges in the 20th century. Well, this professor I had was wondering why in the hell anybody was reading Dunn at Harvard in the early 20th century. And he got very, very interested in the way Dunn was taught, uh, how he was taught, where he fit into a curriculum, if he fit in at all. And there's this whole, you know, longer story that you can get into that I'm not going to get into <laughs> uh, about this group at Harvard that was trying to, in some way, establish roots for an American literary canon. Uh, I think that's what it really comes down to is that they were looking back through English literary history to try to find some kind of intervention that they could make on American writing. 
Yeah. And to look for some kind of foundation for American writing. And weirdly enough, they tended to use Milton as a kind of foundation for American writing. Uh, he, he fits certain kinds of revolutionary parameters that are maybe a little terrifying if you're English and maybe a little enticing if you're a nation whose national mythos is to be born out of a revolution against a king. You follow. Yeah. So in any case, <coughs> excuse me, Eliot revived Dunn's reputation. And since the early 20th century and since Eliot's revival, there's been, you know, renewed interest in, in reading him, I suppose, among people who read poetry. But the reason Johnson denigrated his, his verse as metaphysical is because Dunn will take a comparison. And, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, they would have called this a conceit mm-hmm. and just spin it to its furthest possible limit. <laughs> he yeah, will yeah. take a trope and then take it as far as he logically can. It, sometimes in baffling ways, sometimes in really grotesque ways. But that's what I find really sort of fascinating about him is that he will extend the logic of this thing as far as it can go. It's it's really sort of fun. Mm-hmm. So was this your first time reading through Dunn? It was my first time reading Dunn in any sort of great amount. Um, I remembered I, – I know I read The Flea in high school. Uh, I, I remember that pretty clearly about the our English teacher having a lot of fun explaining what it was <laughs> um, to some scandalized sixteen year olds. Um, but I, I I don't know that I've read much beyond that. And if I did, it would have been many many years ago. So it's not. I mean, the my, so my experience was done is pretty much limited to the last couple days when I was reading <laughs> the selections that we made today. I was kind of aware of him as a sort of presence in the history of English letters and remembered him as being like that horny guy. Uh, <laughs> but I, I hadn't really sort of spent any time with the, with the poetry and, and, and like, I absolutely understand why he would be a favorite of yours. Like the actual, the language is, it's impeccable. It's really, it's really pretty astonishing. It's really weird it, yeah. to me anyway. Like it's a very like, um, I don't know. Like it, it's simultaneously like, uh, like a sex or metaphysical, but, uh, earthy. I don't know. If that's a euphemism for horny, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing, whenever I teach Don, what, what I always sort of like to say is that he can't get his sex out of his theology and he can't get his theology out of his sex. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, and he, he strikes me as carrying on a kind of Catholic tradition. Well, I was like the, I guess when we get to the flea, I noticed something regarding that. We, we, we can we can discuss. <laughs> oh but, dear. Yes. Uh, well, you know, there's. A, I mean, I was thinking more uh, along the lines of someone like Saint John of the Cross, uh, mm-hmm. the sort of Spanish Catholic tradition of trying to articulate in a physical sense the divine love. Like, what does this right. mean? And you know, in in ways that are often disconcerting. When you're trying yeah. to frame that, you can get into some weird territory. Uh, well, sort of I mean, erotics of theology. Yeah, I mean, that's really the. Well, I mean, that's kind of at the the beating heart of uh, of of 
Trinitarian Christianity anyway, yeah. isn't it? Like the whole the whole idea is that the the love of God was instantiated in a flesh and blood body. There you go. And how like how <laughs> you know there's it's it's a it's a two thousand year intellectual tradition to asking you know beating your head against the wall saying how 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 and exploring how and trying to express what that would mean. Um, and I mean it's you know it's it's a wonderful of course clearly it's a wonderful impetus toward. Uh, you know, human intellectual expression and, and, and exploration. And uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So the, we covered, if you're interested in the bio, uh, I, I did as brief a thumbnail sketch as I could in the poetics episode. Uh, I, I can cover that a little bit very, very quickly here, just so that you have it. But the, the gist of it's, Mostly tends to be that Dunn was born to a Catholic family in England in the 17th century. Uh, he, well, I guess in the 16th century, but he lived through the 17th. Uh, mm -hmm. he, so as, as a Catholic family, they couldn't practice. And in fact, his, his brother was caught, uh, I believe taking mass at one point from a, a priest clandestinely mm -hmm. and was sent to jail for it and died in prison. Uh, he was trained basically as a kind of lawyer theologian in university, but because he was a Catholic, he couldn't take a degree. He couldn't hold public office. He couldn't do all kinds of things, but he had to be very, very careful. And he was very, very careful. Uh, he al was always attuned to what was blasphemous and what was not blasphemous, what was heretical and what was not heretical. And he sort mm -hmm. of knew how to uh, thread that needle. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he, he would take odd jobs and just kind of like cobble together a clerical livelihood. And according to tradition, we, all right, the biography we have of him was written after his death by someone who didn't, who I believe didn't know him very well. So it's, it's one of those things where you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Uh, that was sort of like the famous biography that was passed on down the way. But he, the, for the most part, it seems to be that he wrote most of his poems fairly early, like when he was around 20. Don't hold me to that. But I think yeah. around late teens, early 20s. And they were sort of <clears throat> written to be passed around, performed, you know, things like that. Like poetry in the 16th, 17th century – Unless you were a grubby little playwright uh, trying to publish for money, it <laughs> yeah. was sort of a gentleman's pursuit or just something that you do the pass the time with your friends. You know, now you go to a party, <clears throat> you turn on your phone or, or you'd hook your, your phone up to a speaker and you'd, you know, pump whatever uh, playlist that you've got handy. Well, mm -hmm. in the 17th century, you know a dude who plays the guitar, so you compose a couple of songs for that, and then that guy writes it down, hands it to a friend, that guy writes it down, hands it to a friend, that guy writes it down, so it gets passed around. So it's yeah. a, 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 it was in circulation in kind of like a, a literal way, <laughs> circling from one person to another. All right, so then he gets married, has kids, quote-unquote reforms. And there are several poems, uh, one of which we're going to read tonight, that are attributed to basically him writing to his wife, love poems to his wife. And then eventually his wife dies. He is convinced late in life to formally join the English church and he becomes an Anglican minister and 
head of one of the bigger cathedrals in London, and he's a huge draw as a preacher. So even today, his sermons are, are really sort of fascinating rhetorical documents. Uh, dies as this sort of revered figure in in I guess English life in the 17th century. So that's the thumbnail sketch. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but what about the poetry? Uh, I wanted to start with this poem that's usually put at the beginning of his books. When you get a collected edition of Dunn, or even you know, say you open up the the Norton anthology, mm-hmm. the the poem that's usually put at the front is the Good Morrow. So, Daniel, would you like to do the honors and read the Good Morrow? Absolutely. So All right, thank me, you. Uh, yeah, I have it uh, pulled up right here. Here we are. The Good Morrow. <clears throat> I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly? Or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? Twas so, but this all pleasures fancies be. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watched not one another out of fear, for love, all love, of other sights controls, and makes one little room and everywhere. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to others worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world. Each hath one and is one. My face in thine eyes, thine in mine appears. And true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike, that none do slacken, none can die. Yeah, it's it's a really wonderful poem. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it hinges on a couple of things. But I, I think what I always sort of admire about the first stanza is is that tremendous risk he's taking. <laughs> like this is the speaker, right? I wonder mm-hmm. what did we do before we loved each other? That that's yeah. a, a kind of scary conversation to have. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and to his to the speaker's credit or to Dunn's credit, he's he's sort of opening this up. It's not just me, it's you and me. What did we do? Right. Were yeah. we, you know, innocent out there? Snorted we in the seven sleepers den? Uh, were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly? Were we sort of unaware of what we did? And country pleasures can be a euphemism for sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that comes up in, in Hamlet. So there's a suggestion there that maybe each of them was kind of off in their own sort of physical bliss childishly. Thoughtlessly, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of naively or innocently. Uh, and, and check this out. But this, but for this, i.e., this relationship that we have right now, all pleasures fancies be. But for this relationship, everything else was just a fantasy or a dream. Mm-hmm. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got. Man, that's the kicker. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's really treading that line. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got was but a dream of thee. So all of my past activity was just the dream and now good morrow to our waking souls. And not and, and not just not just a dream but a dream of thee. Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's the 
in this, you know, wh- whatever kind of amorous adventures I got up to were merely prefiguring what we have. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's really, and, and, and you have like the, um, which yeah, I, I think is interesting sort of, you know, uh, getting i guess getting back to the 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 christianity sort of embedded in all of this that that is well for one the, uh, mentioning the seven sleepers that's that's a uh a fame i believe there's seven martyrs from the uh from yeah. the roman uh the roman persecutions it's the seven sleepers myth um but uh but also just this idea of you know the 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 true you know that everything being a prefigurement of the true reality that happens to me Oh, is yeah. I mean that's how the Christian f- tradition reads, say the Old Testament. You know that they're always looking for, or even like the the, the Greek myths. Like there was a there was a big business in uh, in the Byzantine scholastic tradition, which was of course heavily well not scholastic like the scholastics school scholastics, but you know what I mean, an, an academic yeah. tradition, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of devoted to as part of kind of rescuing the classics, that Hellenic heritage that they were so proud of. Mm-hmm. sort of making a case for why this or that myth is actually just a garbled sort of prefiguring or a, 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 a garbled flash of insight of the true Christian message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was kind of what really jumped out at me reading this one, that, that <laughs> which I desired and got was but a dream of thee, that prefiguring that talking about like everything prior to this was, but a pale shadow of what this is. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was the dream. This is the reality. <clears throat> and I love uh, for lo- um, and now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear for love, all love of other sites controls. We're staring at each other, not because we're scared that one is going to leave. <clears throat> we're staring at each other out of true affection, which makes you desire to see the other person. And that desire becomes this kind of like mutually reinforced project here. Mm-hmm. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to others, worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world, each hath one and is one. Uh, we have one world, each hath one and is one. And this is where we're getting into uh, some funky territory. So I, I want to bring up. <clears throat> one critic first. And when we get into the second uh, or, or into the third stanza, I can bring up another. Uh, William Empson wrote this really interesting essay. William Empson was, uh, uh, I guess, early to mid 20th century poet, scholar, and critic. Uh, he wrote a book, Seven Types of Pastoral. No, Seven Types of Ambiguity and Some Versions of Pastoral. And how to do things – is it how to do things with complex words or how to do things with words? I, I can't recall. But no. he's he's a very vivacious writer. Uh, he, he can do things with words that are just fascinating and astounding and he has an attunement to language itself that he – okay, he's often accused of being a formalist critic. He wasn't – Okay, he was a formalist critic, but not in that kind of deadening, new critical way that you think. Uh, he's he's actually very, very vibrant and alive and attuned to all the complexities and ambiguities of language itself. And he can do some things with words and question things about words that sort of prefigure some of the, the later, I guess, 
not quite deconstruction, but the other later kinds of laser focused fascination with how language operates. Uh, he did this essay on Dunn called Dunn the Spaceman. Where he examines, you know, if you're interested in Dunn and interested in just weird literary criticism, he has <laughs> this this take on Dunn where he's he seems to suggest that Dunn, in some of his writings, is thinking just beyond the Earth. Mm-hmm. Like if if the Earth is one world, <clears throat> then perhaps there are other worlds that are also inhabited. And if God created those other worlds that are like this world and God is the master of all creation, God created all creation, then do those other worlds have their own individual Christs? Um, There's this way that Hmm. Dunn is trying to stretch his imagination or stretch how he's thinking about how the world functions. But here – there's this idea of two becoming one, each hath one world and is one world. Two individual people inhabit a world and then can become their own world through physically joining. And I think that's where we get into the, the third paragraph That's or, or the third stanza. I, that's what the third mm-hmm. stanza is really all about. Yeah. He's – being erotic without being explicit. My face in thine eyes, thine in mine appears. I mean, how close do you have to be to a person to have your face appear reflected in that person's eye? And one and true plain hearts do in the faces meet or do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? How can they become the globe without sharp north and without declining west when they are too fused together whatever dies was not mixed equally now usually your norton anthology footnote is going to say that what he's referring to is this idea in early alchemy or early sort of humorous theory Mm -hmm. that health depends on all the bodily fluids being equally mixed so that if everything is in perfect equilibrium, then you will live forever. Yeah. You follow? Yeah, yeah. That that any kind of deleterious bodily effect was due to not having enough of some substance or having too much of another, etc. <clears throat> so if they're in perfect harmony together, then they will keep being for eternity because this is perfect harmony. Yeah. However, there's another pun. Uh, Daniel, mm-hmm. what might the word die suggest to uh, a reader or an audience living in the 17th century? How is that a pun? Um, hmm. Uh, does this have anything to do with la petite mort? Uh- as you we, got it. The, the little death. Okay. All right. See, okay. I, I know. I know about this stuff. <laughs> All right. If none do slacken, if we stay in perfect harmony in this rhythm right here together, then we never have to stop. Yeah. So it's eternal equilibrium represented in sexual union which will just keep going bliss to bliss to bliss to bliss to bliss with no ultimate conclusion. 
I, I believe that the technical term is edging in the uh, in the sexual <laughs> arts community. Well, you know what? I, that that came up back when we were doing Faust. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's really sort of the weird thing that, that seems to be the bonus here to keep at play, to keep going with no ultimate end or no ultimate goal. And that gets me to the other essay that I, I wanted to bring up. I, shoot, I should have looked it up. I'm doing this without notes. Uh, there's an essay by Christopher Ricks. Ricks is another one that, uh, you really should look up or, or anyone who's interested in words should look up. He, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, he wasn't exactly a student of Emson, uh, but he gained a lot by reading lots of Emson. Let's put it that way. Uh, but he, he's still alive. He did the, um, the, what was it? The complete variorum edition of T.S. Eliot's poetry that came out, I guess, a few years ago. It's these two giant bricks. He's a scholar and a literary editor, and he was also one of my professors uh, in undergrad. And yeah. you know, anytime I read his stuff, I can hear his voice. But he's another extraordinarily sprightly writer who is just radically attuned to language and words and can pick words apart like you wouldn't believe. He's also a huge fan of Bob Dylan's and a kind of gateway into his writing and thinking is his book on Dylan. He did a really fascinating book on Dylan's lyrics and he sort of takes them apart and ticks them, talks them and turns them all about. So if you're looking for a literary critic that can sort of get you entry into language. Another one to look at is Christopher Ricks. Ricks did an essay on Dunn where he says in in the second or third sentence that his essential thesis is that Dunn was a poet who was afraid to come. And he breaks <laughs> that down. He says, you know, this may sound grotesque or absurd, but when yeah. you think about what that would have meant in the 17th century in England, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's not about any kind of superstitious belief that, you know, you are weakened by every ejaculation. It has to do with the pragmatics <laughs> of getting your wife pregnant for the seventh or eighth or ninth time and, you know, having her possibly die in childbirth. Uh, there, there are all kinds of complications that we in the 21st century don't really have to deal with. And so he took a look at a lot of Dunn's writing where Dunn sort of resists sexual culmination or or sexual conclusion, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And it's really sort of a a fascinating read. Now, what Dunn is doing with it in this poem is grasping onto a kind of metaphysics, I think. Like seriously, like a a theological, spiritual metaphysics. Yeah. But it's it's a part of a lot of his poetry. (laughs) So he's – if you're looking for an edgelord, I suppose it's time. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So shall we go on to the flea? Let, let's do. Let's do. Let's see. Let me, uh, <laughs> right. let me find that where I have in my volume here. And I will look for it as well. So this is okay. one that you read in high school? This is one that I read in high school. And I, I guess it must have been like a unit – or I want to say it was like 11th grade – and we were covering Shakespeare also. So it was kind of the, you know, it was the, the, uh, the, the big rough collar era 
of, <laughs> of English literature. <laughs> but this was included in, I believe it was in a Norton anthologized, you know, those, those Norton uh, oh, high yeah. school textbooks. Um, but here we are. Okay. So uh, would you do us the honor and uh, read it, please? Uh, I shall do so. Here we are. Mark, but this flea, and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. Me it sucked first, and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Confess it, this cannot be said a sin, or shame, or loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered swells with one blood made of two, and this, alas, is more than we would do. Oh, stay three lives in one flea spare, where we almost, nay, more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed, and marriage temple is. Though parents grudge, and you, we're met, and cloistered in these living walls of jet. Though use make you apt to kill me, let not to this self-murder added be, and sacrilege three sins in killing three. Cruel and sudden hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence, and what could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphst, and sayest that thou findest not thyself, nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so much honor, when thou yieldest to me, will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love it. It's it's an argument. It's uh, uh, basically done as the sex lawyer. Here. Yeah, he's he's spitting game, <laughs> as one of my students put it about ten years ago. <laughs> that's terrific. He is. He absolutely is. Uh, that, that's really what it comes down to, and and I like the way that you put it. He's the sex lawyer. There's there's a case that he's trying to make, and this is a, a really fun performative poem. And you know, it, this this is one that I always ask my students about. You know, how do you feel about it? Is is this over the line? Is he going into creep territory? Most of them, you know, I, I open it up. I'm, I, <laughs> I take sexual harassment very seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I ask them, what, how do you guys feel about this? And, and for the most part, I think they go along with the tone. There's something in the tone that seems more playful than threatening, uh, if that makes sense. And yeah, that's yeah. how I tend to find it. Though I, I, I'm totally aware that uh, a listener or reader might really be turned off by this. And I yeah, just yeah. kind of have to throw that out there. Uh, uh, but I think I think what kind of saves it is the fact that it's clear that the two of them are already sharing a bed, <laughs> which kind of <laughs> indicates that things are pretty advanced, you know, that it's not simply this he's not just accosting someone. Right. Like there's uh, there's already a closeness at work and it, it's it's being playful. Yeah. And I, I think that that playfulness done is not without his misogyny. And, and I'll show you an example of that later. But uh, there is a kind of playfulness to this that, that I think sort of saves it from utter creephood. Uh, it is a sort of legalistic rhetorical argument. Take a look at this flea. Uh, it sucked blood from me. It sucks blood from you. And our fluids are all sort of mingled up in there together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's about what we would do, and there's nothing, you know, harmful or unnatural about that. So not not only that's about what we would do, it goes further than what we would do. Exactly. So have sex with me. <laughs> right. So I mean it's already it's a done deal. Um but I but I mentioned the the uh the 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 Christian themes that leaped out at me in this. I mean, I can't help but see 
the uh what, what is it here um doopa 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 doo uh three lives in one flea oh yeah right? the trinity it's trinitarian is like it's just it's trinitarian like the, the three the three persons are are in, <laughs> just all in, encompassed in the one term flea and so this it's a very god it's funny it's this you know invoking the trinity <laughs> in invoking the trinity in a vermin yeah you know a, a tiny insect a pest in, in order to get in sex. order to talk your lady into you know getting down with you, I mean, done. You've done it again. <laughs> well, that was all right. This professor I had um, in grad school. That was sort of his case that done is is blasphemous. That he mm-hmm. he literally blasphemes. But in order to blaspheme this completely, you need to take the religion seriously, right? Like, yeah. Okay. I, I guess the, the way to put it, I can't remember the, the scholar's name. There's a philosopher at uh, Princeton who did a book called On Bullshit. And his thesis. Oh, yeah. I remember that we actually carried that at the library when it came out. <laughs> it's, it's a fast shit. I should have looked it up. I, I can't remember the scholar's name, but uh, he, it's a slim little treatise, but he's a scholar who's interested in truth claims. And how you make mm-hmm. truth claims and how you verify and, and things like that. But he, he tried to articulate that there's this position. All right. In order to tell the truth, you need to know what the truth is. Mm-hmm. And in order to lie, you need to know what the truth is because you can't say the thing that is not unless you know the thing that is because you're purposefully saying what is not. Uh, but then he says that there's this other. <clears throat> sort of category of of statement that he calls bullshit that disregards truth altogether it's sort of motivated statement or or statement motivated by something other than truth that doesn't know what truth is and doesn't care what truth is <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. think about you know fox news commentary or or you know any kind of I guess internet flame war where you're being politically manipulated into, you know, sort of ridiculous sides. Someone has an agenda and they really don't care what the truth is. All right. Alex Jones, right? He's trying to sell pills or he's trying to sell what have you. And he just goes on air and rants and rambles until, you know, he gets to the point to terrify the audience to get them to buy something or Rush Limbaugh is the same way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they don't have a regard for truth. Truth is not what they do. It's not part of their wheelhouse. They have some other kind of agenda. Uh, all right. The reason I'm talking about that is to get back to what this professor had sort of articulated about done. Uh, he is going out of his way to blaspheme, but in order to do so, it must mean that he knows the religion backwards and forwards. Right. He knows the theology right. backwards and forwards, and he takes it seriously enough to transgress in this manner. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's perfectly within his wheelhouse to use the Trinity established in a vermin in order to get his lady to have sex with them. <laughs> 
there's there's something you know over the. This is what I mean when I say that Don is over the top and and weird and can take it to its furthest level and can get really bizarre and grotesque with it. But that's sort of why it's fun, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know the other side of it is. This isn't the only flea poem that was written in the Elizabethan Jacobean era. Uh, the flea poem was a genre. Huh. And Dunn got his hands on it and said, no, let me show you how it's done. <laughs> and really took yeah. it to where you can take it. And I love the conclusion of this poem. The conclusion is that there is no conclusion. Okay. Uh, there, there's a kind of action between each stanza. That's what I sort of love when I say it's performative. Uh, between the first and second stanza, um, <clears throat> she goes to, you know, pick it up and maybe kill it. And he tells her not to kill it. And then between the second and third stanza, she does. She pops a flea. And uh, cruel and sudden, hast thou since purple thy nail in blood of innocence? Uh, she has killed the thing. And his earlier claim was this represents the Trinity and has a piece of you and a piece of me in it. So when you kill it, you're going to be killing parts of us. Well, now I don't see that I'm any weaker. So that just shows <laughs> right. you how you shouldn't succumb to all kinds of ridiculous anxieties. So you should sleep with me. <laughs> it's an argument that doesn't end. It, he can keep twisting it and keep tweaking it and keep tweaking it. And there's a, a, this playfulness to it. It's sort of like whatever objection, how is he going to overcome it? How's it or try to overcome it? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> sort of the lack of the ending that I find fascinating. But um, let's move from, I guess, some of his raunchier, weirder, more grotesque stuff to a really, 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 really sweet one, uh, The Valediction Forbidding Morning. Okay. All right. All Would right. you do me a favor and read that one? I shall. Had, had you read this one right before? here? No, no. This was totally new to me. Um, okay. And you're right. It's it's it's, it's beautiful. Um and so, I, I feel honored and blessed to uh, to read it to our listeners. <laughs> well, to to make it even sweeter, this is apocryphal, but usually this is one that uh, the story goes. Dunn was an attaché, more or less. He was sort of like a, a a personal secretary to an ambassador. This is for real. We know this, and he had mm -hmm. to go to the continent often for months at a time. So the apocryphal sort of legend about this poem is that he wrote it for his wife before leaving for one of these journeys. Hmm. Uh, no idea if that's true or not, but it's a sweet story. And this is our yeah. Valentine's episode. So why not? <laughs> Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now. And some say, no. So let us melt and make no noise, no tear floods nor sigh tempests move, toward profanation of our joys to tell the laity of our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears, men reckon what it did and meant, but trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. Dull sublunary lover's love, whose soulless sense, cannot admit absence, because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined, that ourselves know not what it is, enter assured of the mind, care less, eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, 
They are two so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. And though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens to it, and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. Thank you so much. You're a really wonderful reader of these. Well, thank you. All right. <laughs> so, I, I'm actually that that is reassuring to me, Claude, because I, I you, you know, my my problems I have with uh, with meter and line breaks and sentences. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to know I'm not butchering this totally. <laughs> no, no, no. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. So the the beginning of the poem, you know, the first stanza is making this comparison to the dying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at someone's deathbed, you know, if it's a virtuous person, then they should be able to, to let go. Right. And mm-hmm. some of the friends will, you know, friends, family, you will be upset. You'll be sad. You'll be, <coughs> excuse me, mourning. Uh, and he makes a comparison to himself and whoever the beloved is here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be like that. Let's not show our grief at having to separate. Because that yeah. profane our love, right? He yeah. keeps wanting to go to this idea that whatever they have is something spiritual and deep and above and beyond, you know, metaphysical. Yeah, yeah. Well, metaphysical and almost, um, I don't know, alchemical. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a rather hermetic kind of kind of <laughs> cadence to all this. Uh, I don't know how how explicit that is or whether I'm you know barking up the wrong tree, but. Um, yeah. Well, to a degree, I'm, I'm not sure how interested Dunn was in alchemy, but it was definitely. I mean, he's already been talking about the humors. I mean, it, it's yeah, we got of the time. We got humors. We're talking about spheres. We're talking about the sublunary. I don't know. It feels <laughs> it feels hermetic. <laughs> well, so sublunary lovers that would be you know lovers under the moon, i.e., physical lovers, right? Yeah, he yeah, yeah. Seems to have in mind some kind of picture of space, something close to Dante. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dull sublunary lovers love whose soul is sense cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. So if you're just in it for the booty, then when the booty's gone, <laughs> then it's gone. It's gone, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but we who have this other kind of spiritual, metaphysical uh, connection with each other, we don't feel that loss. But we right. buy a little so much for uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not that we're sundered, but rather our love now expands as far as each of us might roam from the other. That, exactly. Uh, yeah. So the first comparison is to gold, to airy thinness beat. You know, you can yeah. take gold and beat it out to, you know, paper thin and you can right. make decadent dessert toppings with that paper <laughs> thin. That's right. <laughs> Excuse me. But uh, that's the or, first uh, Or you can also make Goldschlager with it, which I, I am sadly more familiar with. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, uh. <laughs> that was a bad night. <laughs> Th- Absolutely. Anyway. Thank- <laughs> thankfully, it was only one. Yeah. All right. So anyway, uh, but yeah, so to to refine the the love and to have it, you know, 
transmuted into gold. I guess this is the alchemy there, but gold to airy thinness be, you know, stretched out as far as it possibly can. Their souls are one thing. So even though their bodies are two, their souls are one thing. Uh, stretched out to the furthest possible limit. And then he changes his mind about that comparison and uses this other comparison, stiff twin compasses, right? And what he's talking about there, maybe they don't do this anymore. I, I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a safety concern, but I remember in high school, in geometry class, you had to get a compass where you have, you know, uh, it's a prong with a, a second, you know, lever with a space for a pencil in it. And you can draw pictures of boobs, which is what most of the 13-year-olds <laughs> right. did. Sorry, I don't mean to be grotesque late at night. But anyway, uh, it's it's that that uh, circle drawing mechanism. That's the kind of compass that he's talking about here. So he's comparing the beloved to the fixed foot, right? The foot that has to stay in place. And he's comparing himself to the pen or the pencil in the other foot that has to stretch out and roam. And the, the beloved calls him back, calls him back straight. And the final image is of having drawn a perfect circle, right? I can't come back to where I started unless you're there drawing me back and making me stable and straight, pulling everything together into this nice tight circle. So he ends with this, this sort of image or, or this comparison out of geometry. And I mean, it's such a beautiful comparison, right? It's so sweet. But, uh, remember when I told you that Dunn will take the comparison to the furthest possible limit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how many degrees how many degrees in a circle well that would be uh 360 as uh typically reckoned in the babylonian manner how many lines in the poem oh i never i did not count 36 36 <laughs> done you bastard you did it again He'll play with these things. I mean, in, in these, these fun kinds of ways. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I hate to get into ridiculous numerology and stuff like that, but <laughs> Don is one of those, those writers who will, will play with things like that, uh, from time to time. I don't think it will behoove anybody to, uh, <laughs> go through and count all of his lines, but that's something that he would and could be attuned to. Now, oh, excuse me. The the one I want to move to next is the relic, and and this is the one where you know my old professor really was making a case that uh, this is purposefully and deliciously blasphemous, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, if you don't mind, I'll I'll go ahead and read this one. Um, this this is sort of one of my favorites of Dunn's. Yeah, but of course. He says, uh, "When my grave is broke up again, some second guest to entertain, for graves have learned that woman head to be to more than one a bed. <clears throat> and he that digs it spies a bracelet of bright hair about the bone. Will you not let us alone and think that there a loving couple lies who thought that this device might be some way to make their souls at the last busy day meet at this grave and make a little stay? If this fall in a time or land where misdevotion doth command, then he that digs us up will bring us to the bishop and the king to make us relics. Then thou shalt be a Mary Magdalene, and I a something else thereby. 
all women shall adore us, and some men. And since at such time miracles are sought, I would have that age by this paper taught what miracles we harmless lovers wrought. First, we loved well and faithfully, yet knew not what we loved nor why. Difference of sex no more we knew than our guardian angels do. Coming and going we perchance might kiss, but not between those meals. Our hands ne'er touch the seals which nature, injured by late law, sets free. These miracles we did, but now, alas, all measure and all language I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was. All right. So... <clears throat> What uh, what theological denomination was England at the time that Dunn was writing this? <laughs> well, uh, it was a uh, a rather disputed thing, but it was uh, Protestant under the Church of England, and of course, still figuring out what that meant. But yeah, exactly, yeah. decidedly anti-Catholic, though. There you go. So does the kind of Protestantism that Dunn was sort of living through, did it believe in relics and saints? It did not. That was one of the first things to go with the, you know, the demolition of the monasteries and the the, the end of uh, the sort of the relic trade and the relic uh, pilgrimage business. There you go. So this <clears throat> is taking a lot of risks. Yeah. This, this poem is taking a lot of risks. <clears throat> first, he's got this description of when the grave digger eventually comes to dig up his grave. Uh, we're, we're sort of in the territory of, of Hamlet. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you read Hamlet in the fifth act, Hamlet intervenes at the, the, in the digging of Ophelia's grave, she's being thrown into a, a sort of pauper's grave without the rights because it's suggested that she killed herself. But that was pretty common uh, unless you were high nobility or something like that. You know, <laughs> we'll dig you a hole and we'll toss you in and yeah. maybe somebody will put up a, a stick and – you know, 50, 60, 70 years, we're going to dig another hole in the same plot might come up with some of your bones. Uh, yeah. Sort of what happens in Hamlet. Yeah. So when my grave is broke up again, some second guest to entertain, and then he has this weird misogynistic dig, uh, you know, because women hop from bed to bed. Okay. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a thing that really mars this poem for me. Um, but he that digs it, spies a bracelet of bright hair about the bone. Okay. <clears throat> According to a literal reading of the revelation, what happens uh, at the end of the world? Um, what do you have, have to, to what you, is, have, you have to remind me. I, I don't okay. know what you're reaching for. What is, what does the soul have to do to its body? Oh, well, it's, uh, well, well, the soul re uh, well, uh, well, that's a bit disputed. <laughs> but I th never I asked somebody who knows his theology this question. <laughs> but I believe the as uh, you might, you know, I think typically like a, a kind of plain reading of Revelation would be that the your the, the body is reconstituted as a heavenly body, that your yeah. body is re is reconstituted physically, but in a in a perfected spiritual form. Uh, that the, the the matter that composes it is a perfected spiritual incorruptible matter. Yeah, and you got to go back down and get it. You got to go right, right, exactly. <laughs> like it's a literal raising 
of the dead. Yeah. There's a literal raising of the dead. So you got to go back and put your body all back together. And this is why some denominations still don't believe in blood transfusions or organ donation and things like that. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, that's why. That's why I was like, "Well, it's a little disputed." <laughs> and I know that there's a uh, and there's a, a wonderful, um, or to me anyway, I think a very fascinating interpretation of like what happens at death, uh, which is I, I believe this is a term that's mostly used to deride it, but it's the doctrine of soul sleep, which is that the soul itself is the uh, you you might think of it as basically being uh, well. Again, this is also you know disputed or whatever, but the it's necessarily – and something that like the physical resurrection of the dead sort of indicates is that your soul actually isn't separate from your body. Yeah. That when you are going to live forever uh, with Christ, that it's you, it requires your body to do so, which means that your soul must be somehow be encoded in your body. So that when you die, it's actually just a secession of awareness and that yeah. the next the next moment you experience will be waking up in your celestial body to spend eternity with Christ in the new Jerusalem. So that, that so that your soul, that awareness just ends. It goes to sleep, so to speak, until such time when the millennium arrives, which I, I thought is a very compelling kind of interpretation. I think it's very interesting. <laughs> that is wild, man. Yeah. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it would be great to die and then, you know, we'll blink and wake up. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to get the eternal life. I'm probably not so lucky. Uh, I think, uh, uh, I don't know. We, we haven't really discussed it here, but I'm, uh, I'm a Calvinist, uh, atheist. I, I'm not convinced that there's any such thing as God, but that's only because God didn't see fit to plant the seed of faith in me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think my religion revolves around card tricks at this point, but, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but that's that's the idea. So if if you have to put your body back together at the end of the world, why would you have somebody else's hair with you? Yeah. Yeah. Because they also would have to put their bodies back together, and they'd have to They're, find that piece of hair. You'd have to, right. They'll have to. You know, you're 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 creating a circumstance where you get a, a nice, uh, a happy coincidence, a run in. Like, oh, hey, <laughs> fancy <laughs> meeting you here not- at the end of the world. <laughs> Will he not let us alone and think that they're a loving couple lies who thought that this device might be some way to make their souls at the last busy day meet at this grave and make a little stay? Hey, honey, mm. I'll yeah. see you on the other side. <laughs> we got 15 minutes till we ascend. What do you want to do? Yeah. Um, the, the, I, he's he's taking his theology, he's taking it literally, and he's taking it to the furthest possible point. All right. If this fall in a time or land where misdevotion doth command, if for some reason England has become Catholic again, then he that digs us up will bring us to the bishop and the king to make us relics. They'll become the saints of love. Then... Thou shalt be a Mary Magdalene, and I a something else thereby. Mm-hmm. Well, if she's Mary Magdalene, then what is he? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, that also jumped out at me because like that that's placing yourself near to Jesus himself, right? I mean, who who was the figure most associated with Mary Magdalene? Like who, like he was, she was the beloved companion of Christ. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. So he seems to be calling himself the sexual Jesus here. (laughs) Indeed. 
Oh, see, shit. I love this. See, I, I, you know what? You know what? This is I, done. I am. I'm loving it more and more because he's thinking three steps ahead. He's living in three thousand twenty-one. He oh. is like, he is gonna game the resurrection to his sexual end. <laughs> oh no 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 no! We haven't even gotten to the best part. Oh boy. Uh, I would have this poem buried with me to explain mm-hmm. exactly the nature of our love. First, we loved well and faithfully. Did they love each other well and faithfully? No. Uh, yeah. They loved their partners well and faithfully, yet knew not what we love nor why. Difference of sex no more we knew than our guardian angels do. Coming and going, we perchance might kiss, but not between those meals. Our hands near touch the seals, which nature, injured by late law, sets free. Um, the late law is marriage. Uh, Adam and okay. Eve in the garden didn't have to get married because they were purely natural. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the late law that injures nature is marriage. We were faithful to our spouses and we never did anything. We, we were good kids. These miracles we did, but now, alas, all measure and all language I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was? Um, <clears throat> the miracle is that we never broke our marriage vows. And the true miracle was this, this wonderful woman who really and truly I'm connected to in my soul, but we just didn't have the chance. Mm-hmm. How do the marriage vows run, Daniel? To love, well, honor, cherish, and obey till? <laughs> until death do us part. And now buddy, do you get it? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> hey, hey, we went through death. We went, So, you know, the scoreboard set to zero, baby. He found the loophole. That's right. Oh, <laughs> done, you dog. I told you it just gets better and better, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. You're right. He's always thinking three steps ahead. There's this way in which he will take the comparison. He will take the the theological comparison to its logical limits and then Mm -hmm. find this fascinating, you know, weird loop. Who thinks like this? But he did. Well, and honestly, I have a kind of, I don't know. I feel a bit, uh, I feel a bit simpatico with, with this kind of, this kind of thinking because I mean, well, as I guess, as we just mentioned, I, I myself, I don't consider myself a, a believer, but I am deeply interested in the Christian thought tradition and the, the ways that the faith has been interpreted. And so I, I do have a kind of, you know, a corpus of knowledge about the various kind of interpretations and, and, and disputes that go on in the church. And so I, I do have a little fun kind of teasing it out in a lawyerly fashion. Uh, and so I kind of get it. <laughs> well, you know what, what I really, okay. I, I guess this gets into my own spiritual upbringing, but the, the, I guess my experiences of spirituality growing up, <clears throat> I was not, um, well, I guess I grew up Methodist, but I wasn't exactly, you know, uh, uh, an evangelical 
uh, Christian, not in that sort of literal tradition, at least not after I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you can use the Bible to frighten kids and that's sort of what was done to me in my Sunday school and things like that. But, um, you know, as you grow older and as you mature, you sort of have to square things backwards and forwards. And I think there's this tendency, uh, to, to ignore parts and either not try to fit them in or to take them as super literally and so beyond, so beyond articulation and so beyond thinking that you just give up on it and say that it is. There's a kind of shutdown. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what I think I admire about Dunn and, and Milton as well is that they're taking the parameters of these things seriously and not urging a mental shutdown or a dismissal. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. They're not saying, well, this doesn't square with how I interpret the world or how I see the world, so I'm just going to ignore it. Or this doesn't square with how I interpret the world, so it must just be like it was back then. And now, you know, I'm going to look for any and every, you know, excuse to justify it in this weird kind of evangelical frenzy. Uh, there's a seriousness here and a, a, mm-hmm. a seriousness of, of intellect, right? This is what we're given. These are the parameters we're given. Let's think through this. And, and I really sort of admire that. I, I'm not along for the ride, but I admire the way that he's thinking through it. I admire the, the intellectual process that someone like Dante is, is going through. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it is in search of a loophole to finally have sex with, you know, this woman who, who you found fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's, this is serious blasphemy. You have to take it seriously in order to do this. Uh, so I guess that, that gets us to his religious poems. Uh, one, okay. It's our Valentine's day episode and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read it, but I would urge everybody to read it on their own. Um, the elegy to his mistress going to bed. Uh, mm-hmm. yes, sometimes yes. I like to assign this one because we in the 20th and 21st century, God, I'm old. Crossed <laughs> us. Uh, we tend to believe every generation believes that it invented sex. Um, no, Dunn's right up there. This is straight up erotic poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's, it's a striptease. That's literally what it is. Piece yep. by piece of his beloved's garments coming off and, him admiring each and every part that's underneath. But what happened is he late in life was urged to sort of start writing poetry again. And he wrote holy sonnets. These are love poems written to the divine. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's got some really, really beautiful love poems to God. Uh, so if I'm looking in my book, I can't find them. Uh, th- there are a couple that I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't cover. And mm-hmm. I guess we can jump in and do death. Be not proud. Uh, yeah. Let's see. <clears throat> do you want to take this one? Uh, 
Oh, you know what? I don't see that anywhere in my my little my little book here. I'll have to pull it up. On That's okay. Here. I'm on the page. I'll go ahead. <laughs> All right, you take it, man. Uh, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls deliver. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swell'st thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Um, mm. what a a lovely consoling poem. Mm-hmm. To to think and about it's... death as this useless entity. Yeah. You're not powerful. You have, and no that's control. the, and I think that's, the, I mean, that's the core of the of the Christian message, and I I think it's it's a beautiful expression of it. And and once oh, again, yeah. you know, I mean, Dunn takes it seriously, even if yeah. he's a, a weird horn dog about it. <laughs> but I I love this sort of denigration of death. We 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 can't fear you. You're mm-hmm. not in control. Uh, thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. <laughs> you're, you're a tool used by idiots, by anyone and everyone. I love chance, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just happenstance. And poppy or charm can make us sleep as well. But what a lovely and and final statement! Death, thou shalt die. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, there's something, I use the word consoling and, and that's the word that I would use here. There's something consoling about this, that when you're scared of mortality and, and, you know, we're, we're living through this pandemic, I I think, you know, it's sort of like a, a background buzz in all of our minds, or I suppose it should be. It's hard to avoid and and it's hard to find solace and a poem like this though i'm not a believer i it's it's comforting it it puts things into perspective in a way you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then well i guess we can end on one of his creepier poems uh or i guess creepy from a certain perspective uh batter my heart three person god um, yeah. This is Sonnet 14. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end, reason your viceroy in me, me should defend but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Mm. Um, 
it's it's a weird poem where he's mm-hmm. envisioning himself as as a town overtaken by by an enemy mm-hmm. asking god to break down the walls and he is the betrothed of the enemy asking god to break that nut and rape him yeah with the spirit it it captures you know as creepy as it is I, I it seems to capture just in its tone this <clears throat> this desire for tra- not transcendence for redemption mm-hmm. right yeah this, and and this, and the knowledge that it's going to have to come from some force outside of himself yeah uh yeah and it, it it's almost it's i don't know and again, I, <laughs> I don't know how interested our listeners are in, in me sort of uh, taking my scalpel and parsing, you know, which tr- tradition of Christianity is drawing on that. But it feels a bit Calvinist. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Like the, it? The, the idea, of course, like, you know, the, the, the Calvinist idea, of course, the kind of I mean, it's most famous for predestination. But I think the more salient and um, at least emotionally salient aspect of the Calvinist kind of conception is one of the kind of pervasive – rot at work in human spirits and that there is there is no redemption or salvation without god choosing to do so for you taking that initiative and and breaking down the walls that you are born with just by being human um yeah yeah uh, it's uh it's really striking yeah it it's it's weird and yeah. and this is what i mean he can't get that kind of violent violation out of his theology. <laughs> it's, it's strange. Uh, but it, it also gets at, I think that real yearning, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's something kind of plaintive in this. Uh, again, it's not for everyone. And I, I, it, it leaves me, disturbed you know but i think that's what that poem is trying to do his holy sonnets are often trying to rethink that relationship with the divine or or to present it in a new and interesting light mm-hmm. the the thing that i like about so much of his poetry is that it presents i guess it presents the act of love in some kind of new Light, like I never thought of using that comparison before. I never thought of using that trope to think about desire before. I never thought of framing this mm-hmm. as a kind of theological clerical loophole before. I never thought of you know, <laughs> just that or the other. Uh, there's something about his reframing of the relationship between, or or his thinking through that kind of relationship between the human and the divine that that's really sort of fascinating you know um one of my favorite contemporary poets is carl phillips and Mm -hmm. he did a really wonderful book uh i i wish he would do more prose because he did this fascinating book called coin of the realm it's just a collection of essays Mm -hmm. but uh he he has this essay that looks at the psalms um and and thinks through 
how the Psalms operate. And he's so extraordinarily attuned to the way that the speaker or the singer of the Psalms is so yearning for the love of the divine, the love of the other, and never completely sure that they're going to get it, Hmm. but still working again and again and again and again and again to try to meet the expectations of God. Uh, I met him at a reading once and sort of asked him about that. And he said, yeah, you know, he's not, he, he claimed he wasn't exactly a believer, but that he found the Psalms for the most part to be a kind of love poem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if anybody's sort of interested in any of this, please go read Carl Phillips' Coin in the Realm. I mean, read his poetry because it's just phenomenal. But, but his, his essay on the Psalms really hit me. Yeah, uh, there's something like that that I think is going on in a lot of Dunn's religious work or, or a lot of his religious poems. That it, it's something sort of contemplative and fascinating that I think is usually missing from the the religious experience today. <laughs> but or, or at least the religious experience as it's often articulated in in popular culture, I suppose. Mm-hmm. In any case, I guess that wraps up done. Any last yeah. thoughts? <laughs> I, well, I just want to say I, so the, I, I guess I mentioned that the, uh, I found the, the poems we were going to, to read in a, a little volume of, uh, collected done. It's a little, you know, sort of pocket sized paperback that we had at the library. And I will be reading the rest of it, uh, <laughs> apart from our selections. I mean, the, I, you know, I, I enjoyed what I read, but in, in sort of talking about it with you and getting a little more, uh, perspective with it, like there's, there are dimensions here that, uh, I, I'm very interested to explore. And, um, yeah, I, I, I absolutely get why he'd be one of your favorites. This is a, I, I recommend to everybody read some John Dunn. It's very digestible. You know, these yeah. are not, uh, these are not, you know, particularly like the language is particularly obscure. The, uh, the, the meter is very solid. It's not like he's, you know, going off on a, you know, a, a T.S. Eliot spree or something. Um, and, and they're, and they're, there's, there's, I don't want to say short because that makes it sound like that's a, somehow a problem or that I cannot read a long poem, although maybe I can't. Um, but they're, they're, uh, they're precise. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, there's nothing extra. It's a really yeah. they're they're little gems. So re- read your John Donne, everybody. It's, this, is, this is some special stuff. All right. So that brings us to the conclusion, and we finished up, I guess, our our romance episode. So <laughs> from our, here, our uh, our romance slash uh, you know talk therapy session about Christian theology. <laughs> <laughs> well, from here we go straight back to the romantics. So we'll get back to that's lyrical right, ballads right. uh, in in the coming weeks, and just the real strangeness of that volume. So stay tuned, keep listening, and uh, thanks for putting up with our brief erotic interlude. <laughs> <laughs>